Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Joining me this morning is a friend of mine who I met about a year ago. Um, her name is Peggy Cooney. Peggy, good morning. Good morning. All right. Um, are you nervous? A little bit. I always am. I always, anytime I do an interview, I'm always a little bit nervous, but I think it keeps me uh, prepared and kind of ready for uh, for the questions. All right. This is a big deal. You know that, right? Uh, you've been telling me that for a long time. <laughs> the um, no, I actually, you know, I love doing book interviews. Some people don't. I do. I, I find it. I find it always interesting what you find out, out about the author, and then also about the whole reason they they wanted to write and and their journey to write, the experience of writing, and then the experience of publishing. So I find it a bit of a fascinating thing. Many do not, but I do. And uh, Peggy and I met about a year ago. A mutual friend by the name of Susan Keeley introduced us. I had produced uh, the first series of videos that I would use in um, in the online seminar. But the online seminar doesn't exist, okay? And so Susan calls me one day and says, hey, I've got a friend who's a social worker, and I'd like to show her your videos. Do you mind? I said, I, I don't give a shit. So she shows them, and then I get this phone call from them and say, we want to talk to you. And so uh, Peggy is um, a part of the whole post-traumatic winning story. She and Susan had this idea that um, that I would do a uh, an online seminar. But I didn't know anything about that shit because I'd never done any any of that. And that's what I said to them, right? So they're telling me, well, I'll never forget something Peggy said to me. She said, you know, Mac, I've been in the world of social work for how many years, Peggy? 25? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 25. And, she's, and she said, I have never seen anything like what you've done. So positive, so accessible, and down to earth. And, you know, such a path to something that works. And I'll never forget our first uh, interaction because I was like, who the hell is this woman? And um, but the fact that you had done what you'd done for 25 years obviously hadn't had a had an imprint. So I said, well, if you guys could set it up, I'll do it. <laughs> and yeah. the rest is history. And, and I mean, now hundreds of people have, have gone through that in, in the last year. And so Peggy is a part of the post-traumatic winning story. So. So welcome to All Marine Radio. Um, tell me, I, I mean, before we talk about you as a human being, tell me, I mean, so you, you didn't know me from anything. You see these things and, and the idea, you, are you, you were a seminar person, online seminar person? Yeah, well, when COVID hit, um, uh, you know, I, I, I work for uh, University of uh, Davis, California, UC Davis, and right. um, I teach social work for, for them. And when COVID hit in uh, March of 2020, we we had to make a shift to uh, Zoom teaching. 
So um, at that point, I was like, I'm quitting because, you know, it was just like one more thing that I had to do technologically. And um, that's not my middle name. But I found that it created um, the thing that that Zoom really created was uh, this ability to connect people from all over uh, the United States and literally all over the world. So instead of having our audience or our, our learners in a northern California region, we're able to teach people all over the world. And that just it just it's it's a, a thing we would have never experienced had COVID not happened. And the rest is history. The um all right, let's talk about you. So that's how Peggy and I meet. Um before we talk about your book, and the book is entitled This Side of Alcohol. The um we're gonna talk about you, born and raised where? Oakland, California. Oakland's legit, just so you know. When you make one of like Dr. Dre's songs, yeah, Oak Town and Sack Town, <laughs> the Bay Area and back down. When you're in that, they notice they don't sing about Napa or Laguna Beach in that because no. they're not legit. So you grow up very, uh, very blue collar, very middle class in Oakland. Yeah. And tell us about growing up there. Um, my dad was a service manager, um, a Lincoln Mercury service manager. We moved around a little bit, but um, so could you work? Could, could you work on cars as a kid? Were you that no, girl? No, I had no idea how a car even ran because I had my father, so uh. um, he he took care of it all. But you just sparked a memory for me. I I remember sitting in Frank Ewell Field with my dad watching the Oakland Raiders, and that's when it was just uh, the Raiders were using the. Uh, Laney Tech uh, College. College, Laney College field. And I remember just sitting there freezing my ass <laughs> off, but just so in love with my father that I was willing to, uh, uh, you know, practice uh, cryotherapy just to be with him. So, yeah. And you could see great. Laney College field from uh, from the freeway as you drive yeah. past, right? No, and you could see the, the Raiders, you know, little helmet or whatever they had out there. Uh, when they were when they were really good and they were really mean, they, it's not like they're kind of like fake now. They yeah. tr they try to be good and they try to be mean, but they're neither. In the in the sixties, they were both, and everybody hated them. And Oakland yeah, loved them. They were totally badass. And I know even in my twenties, you know, as a waitress going to college, and I waited on just a shitload of them. And people, you know, the the bar the at the I guess the masochistic macho bartenders I work for, I'd be saying, Oh, there's Lyle Zade over there or there's uh Jim Plunkett and they're like, You're full of shit. And I'm like, No, go ask that guy if his parents are blind, basically. Jim Plunkett. And so they never believed me, but I grew up with three brothers and a, and a father. So I, you know, I didn't have Saturday morning cartoons. We had Saturday morning football in our house. So. Oh my God. That is such, no wonder you've turned out so well. <laughs> right. That is the way every girl should, should grow up Saturday morning college football. Yes. Yes. So you, you grow up in the Bay Area, and then where does life take you? Do you go to college? Um, I did go to college. I went to college a little bit later. Um, I uh, have kind of a, a, a past that probably doesn't warrant um, this particular interview, but I 
my parents got divorced when I was 16. I was going to Vallejo High School. And when you mentioned, um, you mentioned that 1968, I graduated in 1970. So, you know, do the math. And I, I really went to, went to high school in a place where, you know, we had seasonal riots. Um, I, I was a minority. Um, it was primarily a black high school. Loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, and we, but we did have seasonal riots and, uh, even, um, a couple guys stole the train, um, literally stole the train. And I remember, I think it was my sophomore year. Somebody stole a battery off the Mare Island submarine. I mean, like that's something you can really be proud of, you know, when you, when you have those, you know, those kind of claims to fame instead of just like. Yeah, for Spirit Week, we made a paper mache, whatever. Right. Right. We're stealing trains and batteries out of submarines. Yeah, and I don't think we lost a football game, you know, um, (laughs) the whole time I was there. But my parents got divorced when I was 16, and that rocked my world, right? Um, You know, I'd I'd finally gotten roots. I was comfortable there, um, really comfortable as as a kid. And then my parents got divorced, and I ended up moving to Newark, which is the bane of the Bay Area. Like, um, New- wait a minute. Newark, sorry, New- anybody lives there, but... We don't care. We don't care about that. Newark, New Jersey? No, Newark. Uh, California? Yeah, near Fremont. Newark. Oh, really? Yeah, thing, yeah. And my mom wanted to be with her sister, so, um, you know, we moved. And um, I kind of got back at my both of my parents by getting pregnant at 17. I... Uh, I got pregnant with a uh, an 18-year-old that was about to go off on his Mormon mission. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> and then, you know, okay, you know, so yeah, that moder- that like moderately impacts the trajectory of your life. Yes, yeah, really, yeah of course. Right, yeah. right. And so, uh, how does that? Where does your life go from there? Well, in a nutshell, we moved to BYU. I I, I finished high school in Utah. Um, we came back because the now, final... wait a minute. Are you Mormon? I became a Mormon, yeah, in there somewhere. So is, I've been a lot is Cooney your maiden name? No, it's my current married name. Your current ma- married name. Okay. Yeah. So you weren't raised a Mormon. You became one. No. All right. So you're no, good. I, you're good. I, you're good. Could, you're a good. Girl. You're a good girl, then, right? You go to up to BYU and you become a Mormon and all that. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was definitely a, an experience. And then um, we really couldn't afford the tuition back there, and um, so we came back. And um, I lost my my daughter was born in um, in U- in Utah in Provo, Utah. We came back, and there was a pretty serious accident where she strangled at my brother's house and passed away. So I was 19, um, then a mother, now not a mother. I couldn't stay married. I was, I, you know, it was just really tough. And about six months later, my father died and um, he had a, he walked off the golf course and had a heart attack. And then six months after that, my mother died. And, um, so I, you know, like, again, not to spread this out, but I, I really kind of had a... We a, may a not t- ever, we may not get to your book today, just so you know. 
Yeah. You're, you're like 19 years old, right, so far, okay? And Peggy's like over 40, just so you know. So if we don't get to your, <laughs> <laughs> we don't get to your book today, we'll get, yeah, I, that's what I'm trying we'll, we'll, we'll get to it tomorrow, okay? But we'll get to it. <laughs> Holy shit. I didn't know all of that. Yeah. yeah. But here's the crazy thing. The book's about alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if I didn't know, I would have thought that like that little series of events, not to include your pregnancy, might have got you to alcohol, but that's not what happens. No, nah, not at all. Yeah, this is what's no, crazy. My, my parents drank, so it wasn't anything I went to. Yes, did I drink? Yeah, but it was very bingy and very far and few between. Um, you know, it's like what regular 29, you know, 20, 20 something, you know, kids do is, you know, you go out and party. So were you a cool kid? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a cool kid. Wow. And now you're 21. You've lost both your parents. You've lost a daughter, um, which I don't know. I mean, that to me is just devastating, right? I mean, um, in the whole spectrum of trauma. Wow. Um, and There's so, the so, weird thing about that. Just a, okay. The weird thing is that when you're that age, you have a family, at least my family was like, oh my gosh, you can start over. Now you're 19, you can go back to college. You know, it's like you can kind of wipe all that out of your life. Of so course, yeah. The buried thing that happened, like, I'm okay, nothing to see here, right? Let's just get the squeegee out and we'll just, we'll squeegee this shit right out of my life. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure people's intention was, you know, was they had they had good intentions, but they they actually um, kind of just buried that for me. You know, now, let me was, I'm serious about us getting to your book tomorrow. Peggy's introduced me to a friend of hers by the name of Gretchen. OK, and. Gretchen telling a story in the graduate seminar for post-traumatic winning. And Gretchen's an important person in the whole thing because she's taught me a whole bunch of stuff. But Gretchen got pregnant, and uh, she was talking about she went away to have the baby because her parents were embarrassed. And she, so she had her baby in, in a home for unwedded mothers. And so I asked her, I said, so after that, you went back to high school? And what well, what happened? She said, well, I just went back home, and I started going to high school again. So biology class and prom dresses Mm -hmm. yes and we never spoke of it and you're just sitting there going holy shit right Mm -hmm. holy shit like you just go through this experience and and actually that that little conversation comes up when i asked her did you ever get to hold your baby Mm-hmm. And she tells the story that she got to spend an hour with her daughter before she would, gave her up and then wouldn't see her again for 39 years. And it's, I mean, Gretchen's a, she's a friend of Peggy's, so she's another cool girl, right? Unafraid. And, um, but she tells this incredible story. But when you hear it and you think of it, of a young person that goes through these things, and then we're just going to squeeze squeegee it out of your life. And yeah, we're going to, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to give birth, and then I'm going to go back to biology class, and I'm just going to act like like nothing happened, and I'm not going to talk about it. Like, good God, right? 
Yeah, and it's even, you know, that that stamp of, boy, you're lucky now. You actually can start your life over. What so, the f- I mean, yeah. seriously, Peggy, I mean, you're, I mean, just the fact that that would be connoted to somebody else. <clears throat> I'm what? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how are you still alive? Gretchen, too, like. I mean, talk about people that have been punished. You know, I, I have three combat deployments, and I hear these stories, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, man, absolutely positively brutal. Absolutely positively brutal. And then to go back into your silence. So so continue with the story. So then what happens? I just kind of, you know... Um you know, dabbled with college, went to every, I think I, you know, when you have one of those, those college histories where it takes you two days to put in all the schools you went to, (laughs) (laughs) I would, you know, I would work and then go to school and work, go to school. Um, I met Gretchen in there. Um, We lived together for um, quite a while and um, great story. Another, you know, another uh, interview really is that, you know, we just, uh, we just got back together after um, 40 years. So we, you know, we are, and, and we were connected by that, what we had in common, that grief and loss around, around our children. And uh, I think we just sustained each other for the next 10 years. You know, we, well, who we really else could had, even, who else could even, I mean, that would have been such a safe place, right? And we just met, we met, we both took ice skating lessons at the uh, Concord Sun Valley Mall. And we sucked at at um, ice skating, but we were fucking so good at skating backwards and forwards. And so we were the only people that played ice hockey <laughs> with with figure skates. We <laughs> didn't have any money to buy the hockey hockey, so we would go to Berkeley like on Sundays and play play ice hockey until the <laughs> until the um, the women got a little uh, aggressive with high sticking. Oh, really? Oh yeah, they were. It, do you remember roller derby? Yes, that was of course. Come I, on, um, Annis Jansen from roller derby, and uh, my my whole family. We always my brothers would take me to roller derby all the time, and um, it kind of remind ice hockey kind of reminded me of that. <laughs> it was kind of definitely a lower blue collar best. <laughs> It would be right up there with the WWF, WWE, oh, whatever. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. And later, later in life, when I, when um, you know, in my late twenties, when I, you know, remarried and had uh, my kids, my my three kids, um, I actually worked with Charlie O'Connor. In the oh, he was the man. And like I was, you know, he I, and I, I Joni Joni Weston. Oh yeah, Joni Weston. Was she the one that had different color hair? I don't know, but she was a uh, she was a big woman. Uh, she's tall, and and she was nobody to be messed with, man. Joni Weston. How do I remember her name? Because we watched it all the time. Charlie yeah. O'Connell. Wow, who knew? So you yeah. and Gretchen are playing ice hockey. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So uh, you get married at some point. You have yeah. Three, you have three I mean, kids. What do you become? Ten years later, I I actually worked for I was still not all the way finished with college. I was like maybe three quarters of the way done. And um, I met my second husband at um, Cattleman's Restaurant and we worked at Cattleman's Restaurant. We made some serious money. 
Like he was the best, the absolute best waiter on the planet. People would ask for him. And I was, I was the best too. And when we got married, it was like, it was magic. (laughs) (laughs) He's the nicest guy on the planet. In fact, I was just with him uh, on Thanksgiving where all of our kids were together and all of our adult kids were together and he was there and I'm like, God, it would have been so much easier if I just stayed married to him. And then I talked to him for, sorry, Sonny, I talked to him for like five minutes. I'm like, fuck, he's so boring. (laughs) He's so nice, but he's so boring. He just, you know, he's this guy that really wanted to, he he plays basketball and he's friends with the same people, you know, that that he um, went to high school with. And he's he's the sweetest guy on the planet and we've been able to co-parent and it's been wonderful um but we just don't have a lot in common right right you know you don't realize that and it's like weird when you look back in your life and yeah. you think the things that make a relationship when you're young you're just so clueless about them right it's like <laughs> what, what was that about like i don't even understand it okay so now uh you're in your 30s yeah okay and um, do you ever do you ever finish your undergraduate thing, yeah, or are you still yeah. working on that? No, I actually. Well, one thing I did when when I got married a couple of years later, I started. <laughs> I was like this enigma. I I I um I did some dance teaching when I. Before. You know what I love about this? What? Right. See, this is not normally part of the book interview, right? Right. I think the most powerful examples are examples of flawed human beings. And that's why yeah. in post-traumatic winning, when I'll ask, now I deliberately ask. So so now now that you've learned this, do you think you could do this? And I always get the, well, I'd have to watch it again. I have to you know, learn it better. And my response is, fuck that. Can you remember you're not gonna get over it? Well, yeah. Can you remember you gotta talk about it? Yes. Can you remember not to fake it? Yes. Can you remember if you struggle with trauma, you got to quit drinking? Yes. Okay, you start with that. Yeah. And when you get stuck, call my cell phone, put me on speaker, <laughs> and I'll get you the rest of the way. You got it? Yes. But I, I think there is, a, there is more credibility in a flawed human being telling their story because that's what resonates with other flawed human beings. Mm-hmm. And that flawed human being is now at a point where they're looking for help and they see somebody like them i think that is such a more powerful example for them and so much easier to latch on to than somebody who appears to have conquered it all oh yeah definitely that's that's why your story is such a good story because you are definitely latchable there's a lot of latchable pieces in that story a lot of me too i mean if you look at a lot of the reviews the book's been out for about six weeks and uh Get, we get a lot of me too. That happened to me too. Or thank you for being so vulnerable. I I would never be able to say. <laughs> most people won't, aren't the kind of people that will say what I've said. But I feel like I'm a voice for people too because, you have to talk about the things that happened or you cannot heal. Let me ask you a question about something you just said because I I hear that a lot too, um, as a guy. Thank you for being so vulnerable. And I cringe when I hear it like, fuck, am I that dude now? And I would tell you this. I don't think it's an act of vulnerability. I think it's an act of, I think it's a small act of courage. 
because vulnerable people um, tend not to do that. And so I have a diff- little bit different take. Um, and ultimately for me, I think, and I think Peggy, I'd be curious to hear what she has to say, but um, ultimately it's selfish. I know the incredible impact that helping somebody else has on me. And so this small act of courage um, galvanated by my own personal experience and how much I struggled before I learned this stuff leads to this incredible transformational experience that ultimately is self-serving. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't look at it as an act of vulnerability for me anymore. Maybe it was at one point, but not anymore. I think it is, it, it is a small act of courage because it is uncomfortable in front of strangers to stand up and talk about um, you know, the shit that you wouldn't really share of your life, you know? And, uh, and then in that way you gain access and in that way you, you, you can transform their lives. So, I mean, to me, I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. I, I, well, number one, when all this, you know, there's, there's so much and there is, um, kind of a lot of little snippets in my book around, you know, funny stories about my family, um, you know, there's, there's one where my dad, my, this is before my parents got divorced. My dad was, um, driving an, uh, Oldsmobile Delta 88, which ended up being the bribe car for me when my parents got divorced. And the bribe car, the bribe car, what is a bribe car? Like we're, you know, we're getting a divorce, but we're giving you a car, right? This seems to be like a trend in your life. Like, yeah, this thing bad happened, but it's going to lead to good. Is that? The... And that's really been my life. Like, okay, something's really good happened, and when's the shoe going to drop? And my book really talks a lot about that. Is that I pretty much had good things associated with not so good things. So, my little brother was in the back of the car. Um, he held was I, he was six, so I was sixteen, right before my parents got divorced, and my dad threw a cigarette out the window and my brother, my little brother's window was open and the cigarette came around and landed in my brother's crotch and smoke started happening. I'm like, dad, my Bob's on fire. Like Bob is literally on fire. And my dad doesn't even, he's just pulls over. Like he always has gets out of his car, takes his beer and pours it on my brother's crotch, puts the fire out, shuts the door, get back in. The car and drives off. That's my fucking life. <laughs> that was my fuck. That was my life. It was like, okay. First of all, you know what? A, yeah. a Delta 88. Oh, this yeah. thing's about the size of the USS. Oh, right? totally. Gerald R. Ford. We These could get things- like 35 <laughs> people in it. I'm not shitting you. We put, you know, we would get 35 people in it and then drive fast over the railroad tracks, right? Gigantic, right? Traumatic brain injuries, you know? My mom smoked parliaments, right? And, I mean, Mm -hmm. she'd get done with it. That thing would go right out the window. You didn't think twice about it, right? And the cars had wing windows, right? Do you remember those little little windows? Oh, God, yeah. Wings. (laughs) There was another time we we were driving to Yellowstone park and my mom said and this is this is before my little brother was born so i was about 10 and my dad was a national park fanatic just fanatic and so we were driving through yellowstone park and my mom said can you watch dad's head because he's he's really tired and i need to take a nap so 
you know, he, he tends to fall asleep when he's driving. <laughs> sure, I'll be a 10-year-old fucking 10-year-old. And so my mom goes to sleep. Don't forget, watch your dad's head. And my dad starts to go, like, to the left. His head goes to the left. And, I hear, and I'm like, Dad, wake up. And he goes, I'm not asleep. I'm not asleep. And I'm like, what? Who in God's name asks a 10-year-old to watch your dad's head while he's driving? Like, who does that? You could just switch for a while. I mean, why don't I just drive, right? Well, you were only 10. Your feet probably couldn't get to the pedals. Oh, my God. Because in, so, the, in the Delta yeah. 88, you couldn't get the seat that far forward. He <laughs> <laughs> lied. So, okay, so yeah. it, it, take me to how do you become a social worker? Where does um, that come from? So I know this is really, uh, you know, we can kind of wrap it up because <laughs> You know, I, I really am not a cure for insomnia. Um, had three kids, um, stayed married for seven years, and um, uh, we got divorced. And um, uh, right after I got divorced, I, I you know, pretty much within 18 months again, because my parents weren't exactly good role models for relationships, I married again. And that's that's a whole other story. That's in my book. Um, that's part of the, you know, that's part of my drinking, but, um, I, uh, I had a dance studio for nine years. I had, a, uh, aerobics and dance. We did summer theater. We put on Nutcracker. Um, we contract with the local, uh, community college to put on Annie and the Lion King and all of that. I love well, the, kids, I love the Lion King. And, and yeah. where is, where is this? Where are you doing this? this? In, in Calusa, where Calusa. my my current husband grew up and um so yeah we had this it was it was absolutely crazy and then I finished college right um right before then or around that time maybe at the same time and then my kids were all really totally into sports and they wanted to you know you own your own business it it's kind of like a 90 hour a week thing so glad I did it and then um, I did some uh, work with uh, social services on some smoking, you know, like the Nutcracker at, you know, at the halftime, we had Dandy the Dragon, you know, do ballet and tell kids not to smoke and all that shit. So she asked me if I wanted to be a social worker and I had no idea what it was. I thought you just, you know, you got a paper and you had a family and you'd go pick up a kid. <laughs> That's basically what I thought social work was. Um, and quickly I knew that, um, it was really a good fit for me. Um, and I immediately went and got my master's degree. I was, um, I just knew I, 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 I want to apologize to, to the families I work with for the first two years of my career, but I really worked hard at it. And like Maya Angelou says, you do something until you learn better and then you do better. And, you know, it was just a good fit for me. However, it was, you know, a, a catalyst for me drinking as well. So you, um, <clears throat> it didn't take you as long to get your master's as it did to get your undergraduate mm -hmm. degree, I, I, it sounds like. You did it real, like real, just, just like, like that. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, so the social work begets the drinking at some point? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also just all those buried seeds, right, that we talked about. Right. That that kind of life where I'm saying I'm okay and, and really like it. You know, I've made up a, I don't even know if you know that, I made up a, a my own statistical category. <laughs> what? It's called your cumulative traumatic burden. 
Oh yeah, I call it my I call it my your CTB, and people go CTB. Where does that come from? And I say I made that shit up, and they're they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it just makes sense to me, right? And you you just described it, you know. Oh, now that you've lost your your baby, you get to start over again. You can go back to college. What in God's name, right? And and mm-hmm. and and you don't know how to deal with it. You don't learn how to deal with it. All you keep doing is sticking this stuff in the basement, thinking yeah. that thinking that yeah, life will move on, and and we stay busy, you know, with children and careers and things like that, and hopefully it doesn't seep out so much, um, and then it does. And and yeah, uh, I think it, it's pretty crazy in the sense that you know, obviously, I knew when I became a social worker, I was going to be exposed to vicarious secondary trauma. I mean, you know, you see kids getting hurt, you see families um, being affected by um, substance abuse and, and, you know, kind of the, maybe a father that made me watch his head in Yellowstone Park. Um, And then, and then, but I knew that I knew, I knew intellectually I was going to be exposed to that kind of secondary trauma. So I was okay with that. But what I wasn't okay with was the system. The system sucks. A child discloses they've been abused, and then they're the ones that go to live with strangers in a foster home. And you can only deal with that for so long before it starts to eat at you. That I feel like I'm doing more harm to families and children than I am doing good. And on top of that, we had a very toxic um, agency, um, a small... uh, county in northern california where there was a a severe sexual harassment of a manager on a female manager on a a male co-worker um to the point where he told me he didn't want to live he wanted to kill himself and so i became a whistleblower and that just did it that was that was the icing on the cake i wasn't believed at first then they escorted the abuser off the premises. He left because he went out on stress, never came back. So I had her job, my job, and his job. But also on top of that, the agency, and I'm, I'm trying not to be a whiny bitch here, is that they, they ostracized me for being a whistleblower. We made the headlines of, of the local news channel. Um, and so... Because nothing to see here, I'm fine. I stayed to get my full retirement. I should have left. I stayed. And so that's when I worked all day, came home and drank a bottle of wine at night. The um, And Peggy tells some interesting stories about buying gift bags, all the different ways you enabled your wine buying. And you don't want the clerk to know who saw you yesterday, so you buy a bag so that you'll deceive the clerk. I mean, this Piggy really kind of pulled back a curtain on. I, I'm not, I'm not a drinker. I never really have been a little bit in college, um, but not so much after that. And so, in meeting Peggy and a whole bunch of her very interesting friends, um, they showed me a world that you know I I didn't really, I didn't really know. And um, Peggy has referred a bunch of people to the post-medic winning seminar. And I tell one of these stories every time I do the presentation. When I talk about secondary trauma, we were having this discussion one night, and I think Peggy was a part of it, but it was somebody said, well, it's one of the things I don't like about Mac's stuff is that, you know, 
There's a reason we have these definitions. There's a reason that secondary trauma has a definition. And I didn't really know what the definition of secondary trauma was. So I thought, well, okay, well, I'm going to get schooled here, I guess. And so we have this, I don't really know that secondary trauma is not a, a term to try to diminish somebody's trauma. Mm-hmm. It is an inclusive term. It means you're in this bug splat too, okay? This is not a pinpoint weapon. This is a, a weapon that splatters on all kinds of people. But I don't know that then. And we're having this discussion. And a woman by the name of Anne, who's a social worker, who I think Peggy brought into this thing, said something that is is extreme, was... I. I, I've never forgotten about it. She said, well, I'll tell you this. I think he's right. She said, I'm a social worker, and I get involved in all these situations professionally, and I'm just supposed to handle it because it's my business. And then she said this, and this is what I, this is when I talk about secondary trauma, this is what I talk about in the presentation. How do I get the vision of a three-year-old who I had to bribe with ice cream to get a urine sample to test for semen because she'd been raped out of my head. How do I get the vision of her little hand shaking as she holds that ice cream? And there was just dead silence. Now, that's secondary trauma, right? And I don't know what I would be because I have two little girls, right? I mean, they're they're bigger now. One's 18, one's 27. And I can remember them as little three-year-old girls, the cutest little things in the world. And I have this vision of this little girl holding this ice cream with her hand shaking. I didn't even see it, right? But it's laser blasted into my brain tissue. And there was kind of silence. Mm -hmm. And we moved on to the next. um, You know, I think we gracefully gave whoever needed the out, the out. um, But I've never forgotten that conversation. And so... You know, you, you think about the all the different people in our culture that deal with this part of our society mm-hmm. and they're professionals and they're supposed to just see this this stuff in slow motion, high definition during the day and then go back and be mom or dad or, you know, this this other person at night. And it's yeah, not- what I really discovered, honestly, is what I'm such a better I'm such a better social worker and I'm such a better teacher now because. I never thought that that would happen to me. I never thought that that the families I was dealing with with addiction that I would ever be one of those. I I feel like I escaped it, right? I was 50 when I started drinking. I I wasn't I I I didn't because my parents drank. I I I didn't want to do that. So and it's very common um in women especially um, to start drinking later, your kid, your it? it's really what you said, your kids, you know, you kind of busy with your kids, getting them away to college. Maybe your relationship is kind of a, you know, your marriage is, is not that great. It's kind of a convenience marriage, but you don't, you don't really see it because your kids, you're, you know, you're getting your kids ready for college. You're doing all these things. Then all of a sudden you're strangers. And the patterns that you've had are, you know, are, are pretty crazy, but so it's, you know, um, alcohol addiction, which we could probably talk to, I could talk about forever, is that it's not some guy on the corner with a brown paper bag. It's very, um, uh, very prevalent in um, college educated um, uh, people because we just don't have anywhere to put it. Right? No, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, 
I talk about the two things that the ways that I know we cope with trauma, we most of us learn before we're 20. The first thing we learn how to do is fake it. Like, cause I don't want to talk about it. It makes me cry. So when somebody says, do you want to talk about it? I, I say, no, you know, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. So I learned how to fake it. And then when I'm a teenager, what do I learn how to do? I learn how to numb myself. Mm-hmm. And that is the way the vast majority of us deal with our trauma throughout. And I would say probably close to 75%, 80% of us. That's, those are the things we know. And we go to, we go to therapy. We, we try to find help, but for the most part, um, it doesn't help so much. And so well, I'm probably going to say something that's going to piss everyone off, but we have, we have, it's why I love you. It's why we work well together is that we have a 15 year old that shoots up a school. So we get all excited about, about arresting him and, and trying him as an adult. But where, where our thinking needs to be is how did it get to be that a 15 year old's only option to that 15-year-old was to shoot up a school. How do we, how do we, and I, I hope I'm not going too much off on a tangent here. But feel, how does, feel free. How does it happen that our only option is down the neck of a bottle? We have to get to those underlying reasons that we do those things that we do. And if we don't, it, we're, well, we're and just again, Peggy, dry junk. We've talked about this, but you know, the modern, it used to be industrial way, but it, I would say digital way that we do mental health when you're struggling is we will medicate you and you can come talk to somebody. Every, this is why and, I, I totally connected with you is that for us to move through the pain, we have to, we have to be awake. We have to move through the pain. And, Numbing the pain only just puts it off. And and so you when you live this and then you try to go get help and it doesn't help, what are you left with? You're left with I got to get through my day, and the way I do that is I'm 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 gonna fake it. I'm you know I've got I've got kids, I've got a husband, I've got a job, I got to help pay the bills, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I'm gonna drink. I'll, I'll drink wine at night, and and that is what we settle to. That is what we evolve to. And, um, and I, and and Peggy and I both know there's a better way. Oh yeah. There's a better way. So you start drinking and then, um, I want to, will you tell the story real quickly about how you stopped drinking? And then I want to talk about how the idea for the book comes into your head and then we'll talk about the book. So, um, how does that happen? Well, I, you know, I, I'd done all the bargaining. I'm not going to drink on uh, during the week, I'm not going to drink um, tonight. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, all the bargaining shit you start to do when you are, you start to look on, uh, on, you start to Google, am I, do I have a drinking problem? You know, and more than not, I was Googling with a glass of Sauvignon Blanc in my hand. And, and you know, you are, but so you do all that bargaining and you do all this ridiculous stuff. Um, and then, you have a dot, you know, my, my incident, you know, my, I, I hate the word rock bottom, but I could say that, um, you find, you find yourself with alcohol doing things you never thought you'd do ever. Like I, I really consider integrity to be one of my core values yet. Um, I violated my integrity every, every time I, uh, drank a bottle of wine. Um, but the last incident, um, 
we were at a family picnic and I didn't drink at the picnic because I was bargaining again that I wouldn't drink at the picnic and I'd wait till I got home. Well, then I drank when I got home after eight hours of being in the sun. My husband had had it. We rented a cabin, you know, uh, a beautiful cabin in Lake Tahoe. And uh, my husband was had had it screaming at me, letting me have it. And this is this is two college educated masters level people. My kids came, my daughter came home uh, with her two sets of twins to see Paul screaming at me and calling me every name on the book. Well, my son, my uh, 30 something son went after him in front of my grandkids. And my son-in-law had to pull um, Brett off my off my husband. My husband left with no intention of coming back. And, uh, I went, I went into the bedroom and I, I just, I heard this voice said so woo woo, but cause I'm definitely not a woo woo kind of person. Yeah, you're not so woo woo. Not at all. And, um, I heard this voice that said, Peggy, you're done and you're going to be, you're going to be okay. And Lindsay, you know, Lindsay said to me, mom, if you don't do something about your drinking, Who's Lindsay? You're not, my daughter. Okay. You're yeah. you're not gonna you're not gonna have the relationship you want with the with me and the, Jason and the kids. And um, she didn't even have to say that. I was done. I was absolutely completely done. And um, I knew it was going to be hard. I knew people wouldn't believe me that I was done. But I was done. And I, you know, I I cre- just like I do with with education. I um I made sobriety a research project. I I I I drank 150% and then I also researched getting sober 150%. And so now it, it's December 13th, 2021. When was this? Uh July uh July 12th, 2019. Okay. All right. So so you go down this path. Mhm. When does the idea of writing a book pop into your head? About a hundred days in, I just, um, I went to a retreat, um, a, a sober retreat in Fort Worth. And uh, I just started writing every day. I started, well, I, I, I've, jur- I've journaled in my journal. I have like, I'm on my sixth journal. I, I write every day and that's something I never did before. I just, I just felt called to do it. But about 100 days, I started posting on this uh, website, Sober Sis, which is the original people that um, Jen Couch from uh, from Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, I started posting. like. So that's a group you joined as mm-hmm. you begin to get sober. Yeah. So on day, 10, day 100, I'd say what happened that day. And then day 102. So I post what I was doing every single day. Well... I ended up with this pretty big following. And out of that, I mean, then I started posting on, I I joined the Luckiest Club, which is Laura McCowan's program. But it's, you know, it's a, it's kind of a a little bit of a, a, a crazy story, but people just kept saying, you know, said, I, I look forward to your posts every day. Um, they get me through the day. I read your post today and I was going to pick up a glass of wine and I didn't. And so really so you very early on begin to get feedback mm-hmm. that you're inspiring others. Yeah. It was wow. crazy. It is. It was really so crazy. so what made you 
What made you share your blog on the Sober Sis website the first time? I just, maybe accountability, I think. I think I, I, you know, I wanted, I don't, I, I really don't know. I think there's just some cosmic thing that I, I really was meant to, I know it sounds so crazy, but I was Yeah, you're to, not so woo-woo. I know a Greek girl that you introduced to, me to that's woo-woo. Yeah. Okay, you're not so woo-woo, but you're talking woo-woo right now. Yeah, well, I, I just know, um, I just know that I have a platform if you're if you're a medical person, a doctor, a nurse, if you go tell somebody you have a drinking problem right now, you may lose your license. I work for a university that that has encouraged me to uh, tell my sobriety story out loud. In fact, they're, they, I, I have their <laughs> I have their total blessing, and they want me to actually develop a program for social workers that's real, not like oh, you know, you may drink a little more, shop on Amazon a little more, eat a little more. Um, and obesity really is um, an issue with social work. Um, but I, really I, had no, I, I had no idea until your friends told me that. Mac, if you look at um, alcoholism and obesity and social workers, it'll be, it'll be drop, jaw-droppingly stunning. Yeah, it, um, goes in your, it goes in your DNA, really. And so I... I feel like because I'm I'm a, I'm encouraged to go out there um, to be public, and you know I have to say my husband was not a not a fan at first. Um, oh. He's a very he's a very private person oh. for me to go completely public like this. Um, but he changed his mind as he started reading some of the literature about about um, addiction not being your fault but it is your responsibility, right? Like he could not fit. He's, he's one of those guys that just said, oh, if you want to stop drinking, just stop drinking. If you can't stop drinking, there's something wrong with your character. Like you're weak. You're just not a, you're, you're not a stand-up person. You just need to quit. Because, you know, he can t- he's like you. He can take a, he can take it or leave it. He's never- and I'll tell you, that used to be me and my friend. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You can't conquer that, right? You can't say no. Yes, you can. You, nobody's forcing you to put that in your hand, right? I have, you know, I have, two, I have three brothers. One has been uh, sober for 35 years, almost ruined his career, but he's a very, uh, he's a recreation director. The state, he's, he was the state president for recreation in, in California. Whoa. Named, named a park after him. He's been, uh, he stopped drinking 35 years ago. I have a younger brother who had a five-way bypass uh, two years ago, um, right when I got sober, and he almost died, and he's been eight months sober. But the the nice story about that, he never really had a huge drinking problem, but there's alcohol issues in his family, and he's starting to understand his spouse's um, issue with alcohol because he's he's seeing the other side of it, that it, it is not our fault, but I'm a... Uh, an adamant person about it being our responsibility to do something about it. We have to. So from the start, <laughs> you write, you inspire, which begets more writing. When does the idea of this side of alcohol kind of begin to crystallize in your head that I need to write a book about this experience? 
about a year, um, about a, about a year in. And then I decided that, um, I had a lot of people tell me you need to put this in a book. So about, about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. About a year and a half ago. So mm -hmm. you you begin this process. Tell us about the, the process of book writing. I mean, that's not an easy endeavor, you know, to, okay, I'm going to sit down and write something. And when somebody finishes the book, they're going to tell me generally what mm -hmm. I want them to tell me, right? That's, I, I mean, anybody who's who's written, that's not, that's not so easy. <laughs> so that whole process um was it daunting would you give me some advice about uh about if you have an idea in your head and you want to write is there a secret that you discovered no i don't think there's a secret i think i think i had a really good um foundation i had something that that really there's a lot of quit lit books out there but mine is a little bit different um um, because it's so raw and candid it's you know it's 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 what you see is what you get and I was very lucky to meet somebody in Sober Sis who, um, she's a very uh, New York, Long Island, tell it like it is, editor, who said, you know, my, my first draft, <laughs> this is not working. So very candid. I also was, for some reason, was hooked up through Jeff's program, uh, Back to Zero, um, an Australian author who who's a professional editor. So I had two editors, and my only issue really was did did I want to pitch my book and get an agent, or did I want to find a small publisher? And I I got some feedback on a couple um, you know a couple agents, but I knew that my book wouldn't get published until 2023, and it was really important to me to get it out now. So I have a small publisher. It's Leaning Rock Press in Connecticut, and um, and I'm very proud of this book. It's um, it's just I don't know. I, some of the reviews are are, are pretty. Um, All right. Well, hold. On. Okay. So let's talk about the book. Published published in November, so published a month ago. Yeah. All right. Where can people find it? Um, I there's uh, if you want a book that's signed by me, I don't have a re. I don't. I don't know why people really want to have a book signed by me, but you can get it on this side of alcohol.com. And then, um, can I, I write, also, can I write down what I want you to write to me on the, yeah, uh, really? I may not do it, but, okay. but you can, that's a start. And, um, as long as the word fuck is in there somewhere, <laughs> then I'm okay with it. <laughs> okay. So this side of alcohol, is it, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, so, or so there's three places. I have my own website, which right. this side of alcohol.com, and then we have a uh, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. So we have a hard cover, a soft cover, and an ebook. I like ebooks. When are you going to do an audio version? Um, I don't know. That's something in the works. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Well, let me know if you know if you want a coach. I'll be happy to coach you. What about? So let's talk about the book itself. Um, if I'm struggling uh, to quit, mm -hmm. um, if I'm googling, you know, do I have a problem with a glass of wine next to me, or if I have somebody in my life, um that it has those issues, how does this book help? You know, so um, 
talk to us about how you wrote the book and and knowing that the people that crack this this has a chance to be a transformational a, a book that opens a door to a transformational experience in life well yeah i mean it's a book where it starts at day one starts with the the rock bottom incident and okay, brings you one. all the way all the way through to um almost two years um it's it's really comprised of all the journal entries and all the publications I've done. I also have a newsletter that goes out every Sunday and I have a website or, I mean, I have a Facebook page that I encourage people that want to do something about their drinking. It's called this side of, um, it's, well, it's facebook.com dot groups, this side of alcohol. We have 7,200 people as of this morning. Will you you send me the link so I can include it in this? Yeah, it's a it's a year. It's just a year old, and we're at we're at over um, uh, seventy two hundred people, which really just shows how much need there is out there. Okay. So it, it it's it's got really good content. It's not just like people just get on and post. We have discussion questions. I I share my my raw journal on Wednesdays. We have quotes, community quotes. We we show people out in the out in the um, community doing things alcohol free. Um, and, and so it's very interactive, um, website. So yeah, I'll send you all the links. Um, yeah. So, so so take me, so where does, so the book starts on D day. Uh Okay. And then walk me through the migration of the book. Where does the book take me? It takes you uh, the first 90 days, which is very raw, you know, like all the feels, all the feels. And then then I take you from three months to six months, then six months to 12 months where I was at. So it's a it's a really nice progression. And then uh, 12 months to 24 months. And it actually ends up with my husband writing um, is so interesting. He he went. I, I knew that I had to have him read it and I was very nervous about him reading it again. He's very private and, and, you know, he's very opinionated. So I made him go up to the cabin for four days and the rules were, you can't, you can't talk to me about the book until you're done. You have to read the whole thing before you start bitching about it. You have to, <laughs> you have to read it. He's a, he's a financial analyst. Right. So I told him he had to read it with an open heart, not an open mind. And he came back and really the only thing I was really nervous because I thought he's so private to have his whole life because there's a lot of there's everything that happened to us in the two years is in there. And he said, there's only one thing I don't like. And I said, what? And he goes, you say fuck too much. (laughs) So I thought. What better way to honor what he's been through, too, he's. I, I, he's, he's been through a lot with me. Hello. I asked him, could you write the last chapter? Did that just come to you in the moment of that discussion? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I said, I think, I said, would you be willing to write the last chapter of the book? And he did. So the last chapter is written by him and what, you know, what, what he was feeling with all that. So, yeah. It's pretty, it's kind of a different twist. I, I think we don't, 
we don't honor the people that have been through people with alcohol issues. We kind of say, you know, and he was bad. I mean, he was, he was not that great at first. You know, he tried to shame and blame me for the whole thing. But once he understood addiction, he started to realize that, um, that it wasn't something that I was weak in character and that, and I don't even think he had, he had really realized what I'd been through, you know, as a kid and, you know, a teen mom and being 17 and going into labor and having your body split in two. I mean, all these things that he'd never really, he really never knew about me or some of the incidents with my family. And so I think it gave him a much more, uh, a bigger understanding and more compassion about what I'd been through as a person. And Peggy's heard me say this before, but you know, one of the things that, that when you deal in this world of, you know, trauma and, uh, and then substance abuse, um, one of the things I say, that's not very Marine like, but once you understand the ask where this thing has to go, one of the most critical things is to be gentle with yourself. The self-loathing and, and the difficulty that people have with their own journey and their own stumbling and taking steps back is, you know, to say it's counterproductive is, is trite. It's not, it's inadequate. Um, but once you understand how hard this is, you know, to get out of the valley of the shadow of death, um, you have to be gentle with yourself. But so much of, you know, this, this, this thing, it's like an iceberg. It's below the surface. Nobody knows. It. Nobody knows about it but you. Mm-hmm. And then you begin. Like I told, I told a piece of the story about Gretchen. Okay, there's way more to it that I won't oh. go into, right? And you sit there and listen. And I think sometimes, and people think going to war is difficult, and it is. And what I've learned is that these things are all brutal in their own unique ways. But what yeah. binds us all together is the way they impact us, the way they send us hiding, the way they send us faking and kind of masquerading through life. And then that masquerade, we, we find a way to numb ourselves, whether it's with children, whether it's with porn or shopping or alcohol or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, then we, and then we find a way to fake it. And, well, because you do get this message, and this is where you and I are so connected, those times that I did try to talk about it, it wasn't received well. Oh. And I'm sure that that is because not not because there's no compassion on the other side. There's no understanding. Understanding. So if a marine comes back from war and they just test the waters and with their with their significant other and they don't get that go ahead, keep going because the person doesn't know how to deal with it. Then they shut down. Right. No, and no therapist is no, no offense therapist, but no, no therapist is going to change that. The people that you, that love you and care about you have to be the ones that, that lower that water line on the iceberg. And, and it is just, and it's terrifying, you know, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that, Everybody thinks suicide in the military is combat-related and whatnot. And most of it, I would tell you, is, yeah, they may have gone to war. Most have not. But it's linked to child abuse. It's linked to sexual abuse in children. And, 
you know, you so you'll sit down and you'll talk to a guy who was raped by his uncle when he was six, mm-hmm. and you'll hear this version of this. Well, you know, my wife confines really everything to me, and I help her as best I could. But this is between us. She knows something happened. But I'm afraid to tell her. I don't know what she'll say if I tell her what ha- actually happened. I'm terrified to go there. You know, what What if she doesn't react well to it? Will she ever look at me the same way? And you hear this this vulnerable, scared, you know, human being thinking that, this is the best way. And even though there's something between us, what I'm afraid of is something larger is going to be created. And it's, you hear the story, and I'm, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And mm-hmm. in this isolated place, right, is, is the way we really destroy our life, right? We fake it and we self-medicate and whatnot. And, uh, and so it's just, and we don't understand it. And that's what really post-traumatic winning is about. It's about trying to do a little bit of education and then and then saying that the three goals and ten commandments are this is the path, right? Mm-hmm. And people will say, well, Mac, how did you come to this? And, and my response always is, there is no other way. You cannot medicate yourself to, to a great place. Medication might be part of getting you there, but if that's all you're doing, right, and you can't talk bad to good, how do you— how does a how does a mother talk the loss of a child when you were a teenager? How do you talk that to good? What are the keywords? How many words do I have to say? Because I will gladly hit those marks. I'll hit the keywords if you can make it go away. And the answer is it is never going away. And it's mm-hmm. never not going to hurt. But talking about it is certainly a part of it. So how yeah. do you use those things to get to a great place? And it's hard. It's hard. And 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 I, you know, the the wisdom that I, uh, because of people like Peggy and the conversations that, that we've had, the wisdom that I've gleaned over the course of the last five and a half, going on six years, um, is nothing in my opinion short of miraculous. The deep, profound conversations that I have about dealing with trauma in life and, and the, then the way it manifests itself to include the way we use alcohol and drugs is has been life-changing for so many people so many people and i'll tell you it's people like peggy and you know peggy's got this like um she's i would say this is a compliment she's very much like me okay and that she has this great sense of humor um she is direct right and extremely compassionate all rolled into one right and then deeply committed to to helping people, and 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 not everybody has that skill set. I find it dis for most people, it's very disarming because when I'll get a phone call or an email and say, "Hey, a friend of mine named Peggy Cooney told me, right, that I needed to do this and it would be life changing." <clears throat> that is so significant for somebody because all these people have tried multiple times to get help. Mm-hmm. And they walk away so frustrated, and they're like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I just get my hopes up. They get dashed. It did not help. And I'm now more disappointed than I was going in. And then all of a sudden, when some no-bullshit person like Peggy says this, and it actually works, they're just like, um, they're just crazy out of their mind because um, it worked, and they feel better. 
And then, but the next piece of it is once they help somebody else, to hear the joy in their voice, it's it would make you cry. Make you and now it really does. Um, and I think that tell it like it is. Yeah, it sucks. It's horrible. Getting sober is boring. One of the most boring things I've ever done. Our Greek, our Greek friend told me that. And it doesn't become, and then it's not boring. And then it's really not boring. It's not because you no. you need to tell her that because she says I'm the most boring person that I know. And I said, really? I said, is that a bad thing? She said, yes. Who wants to be boring? Oh, it's so not boring. And I mean, I feel like I have a third more to my day, right? And being of service to others, one of the best things that, uh, that's why we're here. And I, I guess one, one thing I just wanted to include is that we can't, I know this sounds really global, but we, we can't change the abusers unless we understand them, right? For me, one of the neatest things about working in child welfare was that we could turn an abuser around. It's not, you, 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 can't, you can't give up on people. Because if you talk about, you know, somebody being sexually molested, well, they probably were too, right? People just don't do that shit out of the blue. It's because somebody did it to them. And if you can change the victim and the abuser, then then we're saving the next generation from feeling all of that too. You know, Peggy, so I um, one of the conclusions when I got involved in domestic violence discussion was, and I likened it to, you know, things I've seen as a Marine. When there's a conflict going on, we can put it, uh, we can put refugee camps all along the border. But mm-hmm. until you go in and make the fighting stop, okay, you're not going to be able to build <laughs> enough re- refugee camps. And critical to that is you you have to deal with the belligerent. Yes. And my conclusion was, if you don't deal with the belligerent, you're most of the time it's a guy, right? You um, you get a woman out of that situation, but set your stopwatch right. There's another one on her way into that situation. And so there, you have to deal with the abusers. You have to go up the river. You right. can't fishing people out, right? You have to go upstream. You have to do that. Right. And so to me, it was, you know, if you want the, um, if you want the statistics to go down, mm-hmm. now this is kind of a math thing. So if you're not a math person, you won't understand this, but if you, if you only deal in the numerator, the number's going to stay high. You've got to get to the denominator, which is the abuser. And that's how you, that's, a, and I would have never thought that that would have been my conclusion after, you know, my experience with domestic violence in my family. I would have never thought that, you know, the person that you got to stick your hand at. And I will tell you this, when I used to bring that up in conversations, it was not well received. I'm sure. People wanted to build safe houses and that's how we were going to spend our money and blah, 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 blah. And to, um, to think, you know, to, but now that is, you know, kind of where we're headed. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I've always had this very kind of common sense brain in terms of, okay, that's that, that's that, that's that. But how are you going to get to there if you don't deal with that? The, um, I want to talk about, you published a book. Yeah. Tell me, 
give me a couple crazy things that have happened to you since you've you, now you're now you're a published author. So, um, what are some of the crazy things that have happened since the book has come out? Well, um, at least on my Facebook page, and also um, people are taking their picture with my taking their picture with my book. Like we probably have 150 people that, you know, so I know my, my book is gonna, um, and, and because I've sold it all over the world, I have one coming in from Madrid. Um, uh, my book was in Belize. It was in Hawaii. Um, so we're, we're getting pictures of the book being read everywhere. It's really, really, really fun. Um, I was, I guess the, the coolest thing is I told my story in, uh, in, in, uh, the luckiest club meeting on Thursday morning, no, for Saturday morning, sorry. And, um, the person, the host, because, you know, she said, try not to mention your book because, you know, it, it's really tough because the, the owner, you know, doesn't, it's hard with self-promotion because then everybody gets to self-promote. And I said, well, I would have never mentioned the book. When I'm telling my story, it's pretty sacred. And I, I, and so I, I kind of took offense at that. I was like, you are, you're telling me that I, you know, and, and so I even sent the host my outline because I wanted her to know that I had no intention of, of, um, of promoting my book. Cause it was, it, it, you know, it's about helping others and it really is. Well, I told my story. And um, almost everybody in the meeting had my book and showed, showed my book on the, <laughs> on the little square. So that was, that, that was pretty touching. Wow. All right. What haven't I asked you um, about your book, about the experience as a writer, um, that without which this interview is not complete? I don't, I think you really hit it all. Um, How about that for a good fucking question, huh? I can't, you know, that, of course, that's a question I always ask when I interview people. So um, I'm on TV. (laughs) Um, You know, I, we do, I, you know, I do a lot of interviews on, uh, on Jeff's, Jeff's um, Back to Zero. Um, Yeah, tell everybody, so Jeff is this. Six foot, I've never met Jeff in person, but six foot five, played offensive lineman. He's from Sacramento, where I grew up. He went to the rival Catholic school called Jesuit. And then he, I think he went and played at the University of Cincinnati, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, offensive lineman. And Peggy brings Jeff to post-traumatic winning. And... um, Jeff was a really interesting, interesting guy because he's not afraid to run his mouth. And he would verbalize his own mildly neurotic self. And he'd say things like, well, you know, you know, Max trauma is all really cool. I mean, it's like masculine guy trauma. Mine's not like I couldn't drive across a bridge. My dad was a surgeon and quit, and then he became an Amway guy, and then Amway tanked, and we were humiliated in town. And he tells all these self-deprecating stories, to include one where a girl walks off the dance floor when he's like a sophomore or junior, and he talks about how devastating that was right for him. Right out of 16 Candles. Exactly. You know, where the guy's dancing by himself. <laughs> 
After, Everyone's left. After he looks at his friends and like, yeah, check it out. Um, and so he said something that is very, very profound that I that I repeat all the time. And he talks about the way we diminish our our own trauma. Like, oh, so and so's is worse. Well, mine's not as bad as so and so. And uh, or it could always be worse. And one night he said, I think the reason we minimize our own trauma is so we don't have to deal with it. Right? And he's nothing intellectually, you know, significant, trust me. Okay. He went to a lousy high school. I mean, how could he be? But out of the mouths of rubes, right? Sometimes come, you know, profound stuff. And that is that is an absolute truthful thing that we do in our lives. We, we always justify it. I lost a nine month old and when I found out other people lost kids who were older, it's like, well, you know, you had your kid longer, so your trauma's worse than mine. I mean it's very, you know, um Normal. you know, your parents died, but you know, my you know, just all those things, right? And so you you justify your your trauma to be I- very minimal right and he does a podcast on facebook he streams it live on facebook Uh it's called uh back so bac the number two right 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 Mm -hmm. zero so you could find him jeff's last name is graham yep yep and so uh yeah you if uh if you're listening and you want to check him out and you you'll go go to his archives and see peggy's work um, but, uh, yeah, Jeff Graham back to zero BAC two, and then zero is written out, right? Z E R O. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can find him there. So how often do you co-host that? Just, uh, just about once a month. Cause I'm so, I'm really busy doing this right now. And yeah. Tell us about your life now. So, uh, have you taken a leave of absence from work? No, no the problem is that I'm, I'm booked. I'm booked teaching until February, so I'm really busy um, doing a doing a, a, a podcast tomorrow called uh, a Tribe Social out of South Africa. So that's going to be really fun. Um, wow! You know, some other podcasts coming up, and um, going to be on the local news. How <laughs> fun! Going to be on Good Day Sacramento on January third with Cody. How exciting. Cody Stark. What's been the most amazing? um, I mean, because I tell people, if you could live my life, you'd be blown away by it. I don't know anybody cooler than me. And I don't say that because I'm innately cool, which I kind of am. But that's not why I say it. I say it because I have these amazing things um, that happen in my life. And I'm sure you do. And now that you're you you've published your book, give us one amazing thing that's happened to you in the last week. In the last week, I think just what I told you about not you know having me not talk about my book and then have everybody on the Zoom call <laughs> read their own book and and really get up and say, I mean, lots of times when we share in the meetings, there's probably. Um, 12 pages. So how many is that? How many people are on a Zoom page? This is a, two, about 250, 250 people. And most people will get on there and tell their story. And then people, you know, you have a few friends that will get up there and say, you know, Peggy's my friend and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I love her and all of that. 
But what was so incredibly special to me is that every single person that got up and shared said something about how I influenced their life. And a lot, and the people that weren't, the people that I didn't know knew I existed. Does that make sense? Like I, you know, obviously I've been involved in uh, the luckiest club for uh, a couple years now. And so I, I am kind of a, a foundational person, but the people that were quiet that have not, I haven't seen share got up and shared and said, you changed my life. You there were times. You, you don't know, you don't know me, but you changed yeah. my life. Yeah. Amazing. Um, a final question for you before I let you go. Um, people that have listened to this that are pondering how to get help, what to do, um, what do you tell them about buying your book and getting help? Um, you can't do this without community. You can't, you, you can, you can stop drinking, but you will go back to it because you, you haven't, you can't do this thing alone. You can't do it alone. You have to be able to share your experience with someone else and you have to be accountable to someone else because if you don't tell one person what your intentions are, you leave that door open to drink again. And that's really important is, is to be accountable to, to the behavior change and learn everything about it. But also, you know, like I said, you can't, you can't, um, you can stop drinking, but you'll go back because you'll leave a door open. Peggy Cooney, Peggy, um, you'll come back on occasion and shoot the shit with this. Because um, obviously this is the way the Marine Corps born in a bar in 1775 in Philadelphia um, our trauma is soaked in alcohol. Uh, we have a population that uh, that is trying to get out of town um, from a lot of the situations you talked about, you know, and, and so um, the organization is filled with uh, people that have been sexually abused, physically abused, and emotionally abused. And so um, your clear voice and, and compassionate voice and fun voice is... Uh, is uh is very cool thank you for doing this today and uh all the best of luck to you and know that i'm rooting for you and uh and meeting you has certainly changed my life and then the work we've done together in just a year um i couldn't even tell you how many lives it's changed and it's uh it's been the whole seminar thing you know i owe to you and susan and uh uh the and, and I rarely, rarely miss that because of what it means to me. And I'll be flying around the country or speaking and whatnot, and I'll stop what I'm doing and hop on and do this thing. And when I probably shouldn't because I'm too busy, but um, that's how uh, great the impact has been on my life. So I owe you a huge thank you for that. So, And then thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Peggy Cooney, the book is called This Side of Alcohol. You can find it on our website, thissideofalcohol.com, and it's also on your major booksellers right now. All you got to do is do a little bit of search on it. You'll see it. You can find it. And if you want it signed, you got to go to her website. So all of that. Thanks, Peggy. Thanks. Love you, Matt.
that we'll do it on a Tuesday. My thanks to Peggy Cooney for coming on and doing that. I had somebody somebody ask me once, you know, in all your discussions, you don't talk a whole lot about alcohol. And so hopefully I remedied that today. Um, But you can see, I mean, one of the things I love about Peggy is she's not afraid of the truth, man. She is not. She, uh, She will look you straight in the face and tell you what she thinks um, she's got an incredible amount of life experience and I, I think the most powerful examples I see in my life are the examples of flawed human beings who are trying really hard and not somebody who has all the answers and it's one of the things I enjoy most about her you know if you have a problem or if you're discussing, discussing a subject um, she'll go down that road with you, and so it's uh, it's wonderful, honestly, uh, to go down that kind of a path with somebody like her, you know, a deep thinker and with a lot of life experience. So you're not going to get egghead stuff. You're going to get stuff that works, stuff that's compassionate, stuff that's human, and um. Again, um, she's like me, right? She's self-admitted flawed human, and but tries really hard. And so, uh, the book is called This Side of Alcohol. You can find it at thissideofalcohol.com. If you just do a search on it, you will find it. It'll pop right up. And Cooney with a C, C-O-O-N-E-Y, P-E-G-G-I, not Y. So, uh, there you have it. If I can help you, if I can help you help somebody else, don't be afraid to reach out. All that contact him. You know, I, it's interesting. I get emails on a fairly regular basis from people. And one of the things they'd say is, I've wanted to write this for a long time. And I know you say, don't be afraid, but I've written this thing and then shut it down and wrote it and shut it down. And I'm like, really? Why? Why, why, why? So, I would tell you, don't do that. Write it once, hit the send button, right? Don't worry about it. Um, so, again, if I can help you, if I can help you help somebody else, I'd, be, I'd love to do that. So, all the contact information on the website comes to me. That's right. So, on that note, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow, as my children used to say, on this Tuesday, the 14th day of December, 10 days before Christmas Eve, 11 days before Christmas. Yeah. Have a great day. I'm out.